Well, good morning. Uh, we are going to continue our series through the Gospel of Luke this morning. I want to thank uh, Patrick for preaching on the passage he did last week about Matthew's call uh, to Christ and the, the scandalous party that they threw with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. Uh, Patrick did a great job with that passage. Uh, so turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to read verses 33 through 39. If you don't have a Bible, the passage is printed in your bulletin. I will direct your attention to the the title of today's message. It's titled, Are You Drunk on Jesus? And let me just preface everything I'm about to say with this. I'm not promoting uh, drunkenness in any way, okay? And I'm not promoting alcoholism or condoning it in any way. And let me just say that this passage this week has brushed up against my pharisaical tendencies, And I'll warn you that there will be a lot of things that I say today that will probably brush up against some of your pharisaical tendencies as well. So with that being said, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Right after Jesus has called Levi to serve him, and after the Pharisees have asked all kinds of questions about about why Jesus is eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners. And he's told them that it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick, that Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. The dialogue continues, verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours? Eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, prepare our hearts and our minds to hear and to receive and to rejoice over the message that is presented here this day in this passage of Scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The dress doesn't fit her. I will never forget those words being spoken to me on that day. Allow me to rewind the tape and explain to you the setting, the situation. I had been asked to perform a wedding ceremony for a couple. Uh, There are two types of couples I will marry, and we can discuss and debate this at a later date at a later time about whether or not this is appropriate for a minister of the gospel, but I will marry two Christians happily. I'm okay, even though I don't enjoy it, I will marry two 
people that aren't Christians, but I will never marry a Christian with a non-Christian or a Christian with someone of a different faith. And I knew that this couple were two non-Christians. I pastored a church that did not have a building in Asheville, North Carolina. And this couple wanted to have a wedding, and so they decided that they were going to have their wedding in the banquet hall of a really nice hotel in Asheville, North Carolina. I had done some premarital counseling with them. We had decided what was going to happen in the service. And so they decided to have the, the ceremony in the banquet hall where the reception would be. And as we got ready for the service, I remember the music began to play. The groom made his way uh, to my left. I made my way to the center of the stage area, and we waited. And we waited. And we waited. And finally, what seemed at like two days worth of waiting, the best man came through the back of the, the room, and he was not walking at the pace of the music. And I, I remember motioning to him, slow down. And it was at that point that he began waving like this. And he announced to everyone in the banquet hall, the dress doesn't fit her. Referring to the bride and her dress. The purpose of that day was a celebration. But at that moment, it quickly turned into a very embarrassing moment. Not only for the bride, but for everyone involved. How did the rest of that story turn out? Well, stick with me today and you will learn and you will hear. It was an embarrassing moment for her, the bride. It was an embarrassing moment for the groom. It was a frustrating time for the bride because I discovered later on that it wasn't that the, 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 the bride's gown was too large, but it was too small. It was constricting. It was frustrating for her. Well, why do I bring up that embarrassing story to you and to me this morning? For this reason, that's the way many people feel about the Christian faith. It's constricting. It chokes out life. It chokes out joy. And it chokes out the ability to have a satisfying life here on earth. He didn't just say that. Yeah, I did. Had a conversation with a guy on Friday night, and he shared with me the fact that the reason he's not a Christian, the reason he's not in church. And he shared with me his take on the Christian faith. And my thought to myself, although we didn't have an opportunity to indulge in that conversation, was this. This is what I'd have an opportunity to talk to him more. I would say this. You know what? If I was presented the Christian faith, you've been presented, I would reject it as well. Because it's not the biblical Christian faith. It's far more constrictive. It's far more choking out on the joys of life than Jesus intends. There are many students and teenagers in our house of worship this morning that you feel like perhaps that's the way this church tries to be with you maybe. Maybe you feel like that's the way your parents try to be with you as well, that they're presenting a Christian faith that is trying to constrict you of joy and fun and the enjoyment that this world offers you. Maybe some of you even as adults have felt that way at some time. Or maybe you feel like that this morning. That is precisely 
the issue that this passage is addressing. It's the issue of Jesus and joy. You can't miss the fact that in verse 33 what happens is there is a conflict of expectations occurring here. In verse 33 it says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, your disciples, they eat and drink. There are three disciples that are represented here. You have the disciples of John the Baptist, you have the disciples of the Pharisees, and you have the disciples of Jesus. And what we learn in Matthew's gospel, that it's the disciples of John the Baptist that come to Jesus with this question. They say, we're confused. We don't understand what's going on here. As John the Baptist's disciples, you remember he was hardcore. I mean, he lived out in the desert, only ate locusts and wild honey. He preached a hard, I mean, Bible pounding, Bible-thumping, repent and be saved, every single one of you. If not, you're dying and going to hell. This is John the Baptist. This is his disciples. They're fasting often. They're praying often. Then you got the Pharisees. They're, they're fasting twice a week. And then they have Jesus' disciples, supposedly supposed to be the Messiah. And John the Baptist has even said, Behold! The Lamb of God is slain before the foundation of the world. He's testified to who Jesus is. And they're confused because Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. They're celebrating. And they're confused. Because the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, by and large, look gloomy, sad, mourning, and bitter all the time. I'm not going to say this of you, but I read this week about a minister, and he said this to his congregation. I couldn't believe he said this. He said, when I look out on Sunday morning, this is what I see every Sunday. I see a group of people that look like they just read their parents' will, and that everything they had was willed to the pet hamster. <laughs> I think you get the point. Sometimes we come to church, and you look around, and you see the people that are supposedly walking with Jesus, and sometimes we can wonder, where's the joy? Where's the celebration? This passage is going to challenge you today about your attitude in your relationship with Jesus. Because here's the reality. I'm a Pharisee at heart. And Pharisees at heart are those who actually believe the Bible. And I want you to hear me. Hear me clearly on this. Look at me and then I want you to take notes on this. Whenever you hear the gospel, there are two potential unbiblical responses you can have to the pure doctrine of the gospel. Okay. One mistake you can make with the pure gospel is to run to the left, which would be license. That you would think that after you receive the gospel, that you're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that now you can live however you want to. You don't have to worry about obedience. That would be an inappropriate response to the gospel. That would be a license to sin. Maybe some of you struggle with that. But I think what probably the majority of us wrestle with this morning is the potential to go to the right, which is also an inappropriate, unbiblical response to the gospel, which is not a license to sin, but legalism. Okay, now that I'm saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with anyone who do. Okay? We're not going to have the internet in our house because that's of the devil. We don't have cell phones. We still use... A bird, a parakeet that we send to people. The only way I'm going to tweet is if I have a bird that's going to carry a written message to my friend. 
You say it's a little bit of an overreaction, but it happens in the church. Here's the most drastic reaction I've ever seen in a church. True story. I had a guy tell me, he was like, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a better Christian than you. And I said, why? He said, my grandfather didn't even allow a toilet to be installed in his house. I said, do what? Why? He goes, you don't squat where you eat if you're a Christian. Okay. What was that? That was legalism. And for those of us that are solid Bible-believing Christians, there is the tendency to go that way in our response to the pure gospel. What's the appropriate response? Loving, grateful obedience. And that's what Jesus gets at in verses 34 through 35. But I'm sure you're wondering what happened after the, the best man announced that the dress didn't fit the bride. I'm glad you asked. Immediately after he announced that the dress doesn't fit, he said, but don't worry, there is a dress on its way, but it's about an hour and a half out. I remember thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to do. But immediately the caterers caught the word and jumped into action. Immediately, just out of every crevice of the wall and all of the nooks and crannies of the hotel, the caterers came out and began serving water and began serving sweet tea and unsweet tea to all of the guests. And all the guests were already seated at the tables that they would enjoy the wedding reception. I remember thinking, this is a wonderful, this is a good response to what's happening, happening here. Now everyone can kind of fellowship and enjoy one another. I remember kind of relieve, being relieved in that moment that, that preparation had been made. And now they could begin enjoying celebrating maybe a little bit early what was happening. So I communicated with the, the wedding uh, director. The wedding director communicated with me. We communicated with the, with the audiovisual people. And I went over here and I began to have a seat. I had a seat and I had some, began praying for the couple that was back in the dressing rooms and praying for the embarrassment and frustration they were experiencing. And after about an hour to hour and 15 minutes, I looked over and I noticed that that side of the room was a little bit more happy and joyful than this side of the room. And I noticed that there was a lot of activity that was happening on that side of the room. And so I asked the, the gentleman I was talking to, I said, what's happening over there? He said, well, they're enjoying the open bar at this moment. That rubbed against my pharisaical tendencies. As a good Presbyterian, I was not comfortable with the fact that they were being served alcohol before the service. But what were they doing? They were celebrating. That's precisely the issue Jesus is getting at in verses 34 through 35, and I don't want you to miss it. Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist in verse 34 when he says, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What do you think the answer to the question is, yes or no? No. In fact, if you go back to the original language in the original Greek, sometimes the way the question is phrased and a, the word that's used for not there indicates to you whether or not the person asking the question believes that the answer should be yes or no. 
And in the original Greek, I won't bore you with all the details, Jesus is telling us by even the way he's asking the question that the answer to this question is no. Can, can the bridegroom, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus says absolutely not. Why not? Because it's a time of celebration, not a time of mourning. So what Jesus is getting at here is that the Christian life, this unique moment of history, should be marked not by mourning, but by celebration. Why? Because this was a unique moment in redemptive history that the one that was promised to come to save God's people from their sins had come. His name is Jesus Christ. And he tells them there's a time for mourning and there's a time for rejoicing as a Christian. And he hints to what that is in verse 35. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Referring to the time of his crucifixion. Referring to the fact that Jesus would be beaten, crucified, and killed. But don't miss the beautiful, joyful truth that's communicated here. Do you know what it is? That Jesus is your bridegroom. Can I tell you my favorite part about doing a wedding ceremony? It's getting to see the look on the groom's face as the bride comes through the back. I get a front row seat to see how the groom beams and glows as his bride is approaching him. Don't miss it, friends. That is how Jesus feels about you. He beams with joy. Even though we are rebellious at times like a little child that puts their foot down and says, no, I don't want to, and we spit in his face, or if I may be even so hyperbolic in my, in my presentation this morning that it's almost as if a rebellious child that puts his foot down on the ground that spits in Jesus' face and gives him the middle finger of rebellion to him. In the face of that, God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were rebellious sinners, he came to die on the cross for our sins. That is the beauty of the gospel. And that's why our hearts should come here this morning, not mourning, not grieving over our Savior, but celebrating who he is and the gospel truth that he offers us this morning in himself. That is the beauty of of the gospel. That Jesus is your bridegroom. And though you're not perfect, and at times our sins bulge and are very blatantly obvious to those that look upon us, he looks upon you with unconditional love. To the point that he was willing to die for you, even in the midst and the face of your rebellion against him. If you think that wedding ceremony was a debacle, you haven't heard the least of it. After an hour and a half to two hours, finally it was time for the wedding processional to begin. I remember making my way back to the center of the stage 
And I was anxious to get the service conducted because the crowd seemed to be rejoicing a little too much. And as the first groomsman began making his way down the aisle, I noticed that he was this time making good pace with the music, which made me happy and made the wedding director happy. But there was a slight sway in his walk (laughs) that concerned me. But he made his way up, and I thought to myself, Maybe he's been a part of the open bar. I, didn't, I missed. It went from bad to worse. The second groomsman and bridesmaid began making their way down the, the aisle. And as they parted ways, the groomsman kind of winked at the bridesmaid and shot her like this and said, and blew her a kiss. And then it got worse. After all the rest of the bridal party got there to the front, the bride began making her way down the aisle, and all the groomsmen began whistling at her. I almost stormed out. Because I remember thinking to myself, I went to a good college and a good preacher school, but no one ever prepared me for this. But in that moment, as I was wrestling with my pharisaical tendencies, I came to this conclusion, right or wrong. I made this couple a commitment. I made them a vow. I was going to conduct their wedding ceremony. Now, I'm going to cut a lot of things out we agreed on because I want to get to the finish line, and I did. If you had seen me, it would look like Jonah's guys throwing cargo over the ship. I was cutting stuff through that ceremony. I was getting them married as quickly as I could. But I made a commitment. I wanted to keep it. That's what Jesus is hinting at in the rest of this passage in verses 36 through 39. Jesus highlights the commitment he made to his people. That God the Father made. He says, and he also told them a parable in verse 36. But what's ironic is Jesus actually tells them two parables. What does he say? Verse 36 and following. He says, he also told them a parable that no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. He does, if he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the, the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. What's he highlighting here? Simple, the new covenant. He's highlighting the gospel that he's come to proclaim to them. And don't miss it. What he's telling the disciples of John the Baptist, what he's telling the disciples of the Pharisees is this. You know about the ceremonial worship. You know about uh, all of the commands of Scripture but what I've, all those things just pointed forward to me. They're, they're fulfilled in me. And here's the ironic thing. When you go back to the Old Testament, do you know how many times God's people were commanded to fast? I forgot this until this week. Only one time. 
On the day of atonement, God's people were commanded to fast. In fact, James Cook read that passage this morning, Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus chapter 16. It highlights the only time in the Old Testament when people, God's people were directly commanded to fast. It was on the day of atonement. And it's kind of just hinted at when it says in the passage, afflict yourselves. But what happened was during the time of Babylonian exile, since God's people were not allowed to worship him with sacrifices and so forth, they wrestled with how do we declare our love and commitment to God? And they decided we're going to start fasting and we'll fast twice a week. So they began fasting every Monday and they began fasting every Thursday. What Jesus tells them is, hey, What you're doing is like you're worshiping the box that the present comes in. Rather than enjoying the gift itself. And what Jesus is saying to them in these parables is, those Old Testament laws and those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to me. I'm the gift. And notice what Jesus is saying here. He says three times in verses 36 through 39, no one. He says, no one, in verse 36, would tear a new piece from a new garment and put it on an old garment. I mean, imagine if I went home today and I shared with Jennifer my pair of Levi's jeans that I bought at JCPenney 25 years ago that are riddled with holes and she wishes I would throw them away. Imagine if I went home today and I looked at her and I said, Honey, look at this nice new pair of Eddie Bauer blue jeans I bought that cost me $50. Yeah, she'd be like, yeah, aren't you impressed? And she would be like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful pair of jeans. But why, why is that patch missing there in the new one? I said, well, I wanted to fix my old pair of jeans. And so I tore off this, old, this new piece of jean to put on the old piece of jean. Would, would I do that? I would hope not. That's what Jesus is saying. The new covenant is not to be ripped as if to fit the old. No, all the Old Testament ceremonies were pointing forward to Jesus, who is the gift himself. And in a similar way, he talks about this wineskin thing that's lost in our culture. But here's what you need to know. That new wine was put into new wineskins. Why? So that as the new wine fermented and got older, the new wineskins would expand and adjust with it. If you put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins that were stretched out would burst and the new wine would spill. Thus you would lose the wineskins and the wine. Don't miss the point that Jesus is saying to us. What he's saying to us is this. Enjoy the gift. Rather than admiring the packaging. The packaging is only good as it represents and points you to the gift. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, So then the law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Here's the challenge we all have. As good Bible-believing people. Sometimes we can get more tied up in the packaging than we can the gift.
After the wedding ceremony was finished, I wanted to get out of there and back home as quickly as I could. But as I made my way to my car, I realized there was something I forgot to give the couple. It was their wedding certificate. And I looked for a half hour to try to find the wedding party following the wedding. And I just assumed that they would be gathered for pictures. I asked everyone where they might be. And no one knew. Even the photographer himself was looking for the wedding party. As I looked all over the hotel that afternoon, finally I went by a small cubby hole and I heard some laughter. And I looked in and I noticed that it was a very small bar. And there was the wedding party. They had left the wedding ceremony and immediately began doing shots of tequila in the bar. My pharisaical, pharisaical feathers were ruffled. As I walked in there to hand them the wedding certificate, they politely offered me a shot myself. Fortunately, Jennifer wasn't there with me because I might have taken them up on the offer of giving the day I'd, have been, I'd been experiencing. But I graciously declined the offer and said, no, i got to head home. And I, I gave them their wedding certificate and I made my way out the door as they offered to not only offer me a shot, but a whole bottle. Why do I bring up that story today? For this reason, that couple and their wedding, I've never forgotten. Because I thought about how much of a disgrace it was that day. But as I read this passage this week and was forced to study it, I've been convicted that maybe there's a, a, a greater tragedy that occurs every Sunday and a greater tragedy that occurs in my life every single day. It's a tragedy that those in the bar on the weekends appear to be more joyful than those of us that are following Jesus every day. Do you know what was happening in that bar that day? I don't condone dr drunkenness. I don't condone or promote alcoholism. Here's what was happening. The bridal party was celebrating the bride and groom with the groom. Did you catch that? They were celebrating the bride and groom in the joy and the presence of being with the groom. What is the essence of the Christian faith? It is this. We get to celebrate Jesus with Jesus. Did you catch that? That's the essence of the Christian faith. That's what's going to make heaven, heaven. Not that there will be streets of gold. Not that you'll, the deacons will never have to fill my water container again because I'll never be quenching for thirst again. But that I'll get to celebrate my Savior with my Savior 
every day. The tragedy is this, that the Christians that we know and love, and even myself, do not even begin to mirror, echo sometimes the joy of those that are lost among us. That's a tragedy, my friend. We should be walking so close with Jesus that people that encounter us every day would see the giddiness of our soul. And because we know that Jesus is our bridegroom, our life is a celebration of joy with him. And so at 9 a.m. in the morning, they should be asking of you. At 8 a.m. in the morning, they should be asking of me, is he drunk? And you can say, absolutely. That's scandalous. I know. Because he's drunk on Jesus. This passage challenges me. And it challenges you. To live a life of joy. Because you're drunk on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, change is hard. And this passage ruffles my feathers. It's meant to. Because you don't want or need more religious people. What you want is for us to have a genuine relationship with you. Is there a time and a place to mourn and grieve over our sin? Absolutely. But after we've been afflicted by our sin and we've taken it to you, Lord, we should be filled with gratitude and joy. Father, we are surrounded by a community that is full of hurting people. Father, this house of worship is filled with hurting people that are longing for joy, that are longing for fulfillment, that are longing for satisfaction in this life. Father, I ask you and I beg you that you would forgive me that over this last year I have allowed COVID at times to rob me of my joy. Forgive us, Father, for allowing the distractions and the inconveniences of life to rob us of your joy. Help us to approach every Sunday morning worship service as a celebration. Because Jesus is not dead anymore. He's alive. And Father, help us to go to work 
tomorrow with a new pep in our step. Because Jesus is alive. And our life is meant to bring glory to you as we live a life of celebration and gratitude. Because of who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.